Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. This is where I'm a little bit, uh, the presence of the officers down here is a little bit unnerving. Uh, some of it, some of this stuff I don't mind talking about because they wouldn't know from Adam, but I, but names, I, will, I can write it down or I can whisper it to you or whatever. I just don't want the police getting any kind of names at this point. Well, if you can, can you hear that? I can hear it, yeah. Okay. I just wrote, I just said that the Hawkins girl's head severed and taken up the road about 25 to 50 yards and buried in a location about 10 yards west of the road on a rocky hillside. Did you hear that? Bundy rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen at the Holiday Inn near Florida State University campus. Bundy later said that he initially resolved to find legitimate employment and refrain from further criminal activity. Knowing he could probably remain free and undetected in Florida indefinitely as long as he did not attract the attention of police but his loan job application at a construction site had to be abandoned when he was asked to produce identification. He reverted to his old habits of shoplifting and stealing credit cards from women's wallets left in shopping carts. In the early hours of January 15, 1978, one week after his arrival in Tallahassee, Bundy entered FSU's Chi Omega sorority house through a rear door with a faulty locking mechanism. Beginning at about 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman, 21, with a piece of oak firewood as she slept, then garroted her with a nylon stocking. He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious, strangled her, tore one of her nipples, bit deeply into the left buttock, and sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. In an adjoining bedroom, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder. 
and Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Chandler and Kleiner survived the attack. Kleiner later attributed their survival to an automobile headlight illuminating the interior of their room and frightening away the attacker. Tallahassee detectives later determined that the four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes, with an earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard nothing. After leaving the sorority house, Bundy broke into a basement apartment eight blocks away and attacked FSU student Cheryl Thomas, dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five places. She was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dance career. On Thomas's bed, police found semen stains and a pantyhose mask containing two hairs similar to Bundy's in class and characteristic. On February 8th, Bundy drove 150 miles east to Jacksonville in a stolen FSU van. In a parking lot, he approached 14-year-old Leslie Paramenter, the daughter of a Jacksonville Police Department chief of detectives. Identifying himself as Richard Burton from the fire department, but retreated when Paramenter's older brother arrived and challenged him. That afternoon, he backtracked 60 miles west to Lake City. At Lake City Junior High School the following morning, 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach was summoned to her homeroom by a teacher to retrieve a forgotten purse. She never returned to class. Seven weeks later, after an intense search, her partially mummified remains were found in a pig farrowing shed near the Suwannee River State Park, 35 miles northwest of Lake City. She appeared to have been raped, with her underwear found near the body containing semen, and killed by violence to the neck with a knife. On February 12th, with insufficient cash to pay his overdue rent, and a growing suspicion that police were closing in on him, Bundy stole a car and fled Tallahassee, driving westward across the Florida Panhandle. Three days later, at about 1 a.m., he was stopped by Pensacola police officer David Lee near the Alabama state line after a wants and warrants check showed his Volkswagen Beetle was stolen. When told he was under arrest, Bundy kicked Lee's legs out from under him and took off running. Lee fired a warning shot, followed by a second round, gave chase, and tackled him. The two struggled over Lee's gun before the officer finally subdued and arrested Bundy. In the stolen vehicle, there was three sets of IDs belonging to the female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen television set. Also found were a pair of dark-rimmed, non-prescription glasses and a pair of plaid slacks, later identified as the disguise wore by Richard Burton from the fire department in Jacksonville. As Lee transported his suspect to jail, unaware that he had just arrested one of the FBI's ten most wanted fugitives, he heard Bundy say, quote, I wish you had killed me.
Following a change of venue to Miami, Bundy stood trial in the Chi Omega homicides and assaults in June of 1979. The trial was covered by 250 reporters from five continents and was the first to be televised nationally in the United States. What do we have here, Ken? Let's see. Oh, it's an indictment, all right. Why don't you read it to me? You're on bond for election, aren't you? Mr. Bundy got it, didn't you? Mr. Bundy he told me that you told him that you were going to get me. He said he was going to get me. Okay, you've got the indictment. It's all you're going to get. Let's read it. Let's go. Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged. Indictment: two counts burglary, two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree. Design or intent to affect the death of said Lisa Lee my chance to talk to the press. Contrary to section 78204 Florida statute. I'll plead not guilty right now. And your grand jury is being present. Despite the presence of five court-appointed attorneys, Bundy again handled much of his own defense. Bundy co-defense Polly Nelson later wrote, quote, he sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and grandiose delusion. Ted was facing murder charges with the possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him apparently was that he be in charge, unquote. According to Mike Minerva, a Tallahassee public defender and member of the defense team, a pre-trial plea bargain was negotiated in which Bundy would plead guilty to killing Levy, Bowman, and Leach in exchange for a firm 75-year prison sentence. Prosecutors were amenable to a deal, by one account, because, quote, prospects of losing the trial were very good, unquote. Bundy, on the other hand, saw the plea deal not only as a means of avoiding the death penalty, but also as a tactical move. He could enter his plea, then wait a few years for evidence to disintegrate or to become lost, for witnesses to die, move on, or retract their testimony. Once the case against him had deteriorated beyond repair, he could file a post-conviction motion to set aside the plea and secure an acquittal. At the last minute, however, Bundy refused the deal. Quote, It made him realize he was going to have to stand up in front of the whole world and say he was guilty. He just couldn't do it, unquote, Minerva said. At trial, crucial testimony came from the Chi Omega sorority members Connie Hastings, who placed Bundy in the vicinity of the Chi Omega house that evening, and Nita Neary, who saw him leaving the sorority house clutching the oak murder weapon. Incriminating physical evidence included impressions of the bite wounds Bundy had inflicted on Lisa Levy's left buttock, which forensic odontologist Richard Sorbiran and Lowell Levine matched to castings of Bundy's teeth. The jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting him on July 24, 1979, of the Bowman and Levy murders. Three counts of attempted first-degree murder for the assaults on Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas, and two counts of burglary. Trial Judge Edward Coward imposed the death sentence for the murder convictions. I'm not asking for mercy, for I find it somewhat 
absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and receive the pain for that act. But I will not share the burden for the guilt. This court, independent of, but in agreement with, the advisory sentence rendered by the jury does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant, Theodore Robert Bundy. Take care of yourself, young man. Thank you. I, I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It's a tragedy for this court to see it's such a total waste, I think, of humanity that I've experienced in this court. You're a bright young man. You made a good lawyer. I'd love to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. Six months later, a second trial took place in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach. Bundy was found guilty once again after less than eight hours' deliberation, due principally to testimony of an eyewitness who saw him leading Leach from the schoolyard into his stolen van. Important material evidence included clothing, fibers with an unusual manufacturing error found in the van and on Leach's body, which matched the fibers from the jacket Bundy was wearing when he was arrested. During the penalty phase of the trial, Bundy took advantage of an obscure Florida law providing that the marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge constituted a legal marriage. As he was questioning former Washington State DES co-worker Carol Ann Boone, who had moved to Florida to be near Bundy, had testified on his behalf during both trials, and was again testifying on his behalf as a character witness, he asked her to marry him. She accepted, and Bundy declared to the court that they were legally married. Carol, do you want to marry me? Yes. And I want to marry you? Yes. And I do want to marry you? Yes, I do. On February 10, 1980, Bundy was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. As the sentence was announced, he reportedly stood and shouted, quote, Tell the jury they were wrong, unquote. This third death sentence would be the one ultimately carried out nearly nine years later. In October 1981, Boone gave birth to a daughter and named Bundy as the father. While conjugal visits were not allowed at Rayford Prison, inmates were known to pool their money in order to bribe guards to allow them intimate time alone with their female visitors. Shortly after the conclusion of the Leach trial and the beginning of the long appeal process that followed, Bundy initiated a series of interviews with Stephen Meiklid and Hugh Ainsworth, Speaking mostly in third person to avoid the stigma of confession, he began for the first time to divulge details of his crimes and his thought process. He recounted his career as a thief, confirming Kleffler's longtime suspicion that he had shoplifted virtually everything of substance that he owned. Quote, the big payoff for me, he said, 
was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. I really enjoyed having something that I had wanted and gone out and taken. Possessions proved to be an important motive for the rape and murder as well. Sexual assault, he said, fulfilled his need to totally possess his victims. At first, he killed his victims as a matter of expediency to eliminate the possibility of being caught. But later, the murder became part of the adventure. Quote, the ultimate possession was in fact the taking of the life, he said, and then the physical possession of their remains, unquote. Bundy also confided in Special Agent William Hagemeyer of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit. Hagemeyer was struck by the deep, almost mystical satisfaction that Bundy took in murder. Quote, he said that after a while, murder is not just a crime of lust or violence. It becomes possession. They are part of you. The victim becomes part of you, and you two are forever one. And the grounds where you kill them or leave them become sacred to you, and you will always be drawn back to them, unquote. Bundy told Hagmare that he considered himself to be an amateur and impulsive killer in his early years, before moving into what he termed as his prime or predator phase at about the time of Linda Healy's murder in 1974. This implied that he had begun killing well before 1974, although he never explicitly admitted to having done so. In July of 1984, Rayford guards found two hacksaw blades that Bundy had hidden in his cell. A steel bar in one of the cell windows had been sawed completely through at the top and bottom and glued back into place with a homemade soap-based adhesive. Several months later, guards found an unauthorized mirror hidden in the cell, and Bundy was again moved into a different cell. Shortly thereafter, he was charged with disciplinary infraction for an unauthorized correspondence with another high-profile criminal, John Hinckley Jr. In October of 1984, Bundy contacted Robert Keppel and offered to share his self-proclaimed expertise in serial killer psychology in the ongoing hunt in Washington for the Green River Killer, later identified as Gary Ridgway. Keppel and the Green River Task Force detective Dave Reichert interviewed Bundy, but Ridgway remained at large for a further 17 years. Keppel published a detailed documentation of the Green River interviews and later collaborated with Micklin for another examination of the interview material. Bundy coined the nickname, quote, The River Man for Gary Ridgway, which was later used for the title of Keppel's book, The River Man, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer. In early 1986, an execution date was set on the Chi Omega convictions. The Supreme Court issued a brief stay, but the execution was quickly rescheduled in April. Shortly after the new date was announced, Bundy finally confessed to Hagmeyer and Nelson what they believed was the full range of his depredations, including details of what he did to some of his victims after their deaths. He told them that he revisited Taylor Mountain, Issaquah, and other secondary crime scenes, often several times, to lie with his victims and perform sexual acts with their decomposing bodies until putrefaction forced him to stop. In some cases, he drove for several hours each way and remained the entire night. 
In Utah, he applied makeup to Melissa Smith's lifeless face, and he repeatedly washed Laura Amy's hair. Quote, if you've got the time, he told Hagmeyer, they can be anything you want them to be, unquote. He decapitated approximately 12 of his victims with a hacksaw, and kept at least one group of several heads, probably the four later found on Taylor Mountain of Rancourt Parks, Ball, and Healy, in his apartment for a period of time before disposing of them. Less than 15 hours before the scheduled July 2nd execution, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals stayed it indefinitely and remanded the Chi Omega case for the review on multiple technicalities, including Bundy's mental competency to stand trial, and an erroneous instruction by the trial judge during the penalty phase requiring the jury to break a 6-6 tie between life imprisonment and the death penalty, which ultimately was never resolved. A new date was then set to carry out the Leach sentence. The 11th Circuit Court issued a stay on November 17th. In mid-1988, the 11th Circuit ruled against Bundy, and in December the Supreme Court denied a motion to review the ruling. Within hours of that final denial, a firm execution date of January 24, 1989 was announced. Bundy's jury through the appeals court had been unusually rapid for a capital murder case. Contrary to popular belief, the courts moved Bundy as fast as they could. Even the prosecutors acknowledged that Bundy's lawyers never employed delaying tactics, though people everywhere seethed at the apparent delay in the executing Ted Bundy was actually on the fast track. With all appeal avenues exhausted and no further motivation to deny his crimes, Bundy agreed to speak frankly with the investigators. He confessed to Keppel that he had committed all of the eight of the Washington and Oregon homicides for which he was the prime suspect. He described three additional previously unknown victims in Washington and two in Oregon, whom he declined to identify. He said he left a fifth corpse, Donna Manson, on Taylor Mountain, but incinerated her head at Kleffler's fireplace. Quote, of all the things I did to Kleffler, he told Keppel, this is probably the one that she is least likely to forgive me for. Poor Liz, unquote. He described in graphic detail his abduction of George Ann Hawkins from the brightly lit University of Washington alley, how he had lured her to his car before rendering her unconscious with a crowbar he had earlier placed beside the vehicle. He then handcuffed her and drove her to Issaquah, where he had strangled her before spending the entire night with her body. He later revisited her corpse on three different occasions. He also admitted for the first time that he returned to the UW alley in the morning after Hawkins' abduction and murder. There, in the very midst of a major crime scene investigation, he located and gathered Hawking's earrings and one of her shoes, where he had left them in the adjoining parking lot, and departed unobserved. Quote, it was a feat so brazen, wrote Keppel, that it astonishes police even today, unquote. He described the Iscook crime scene, where the bones of Ott, Nasland, and Hawkins were found, and it was almost like he was just there, Keppel said. Like he was seeing everything. He was infatuated with the idea because he spent so much time there. He is just totally consumed with murder all the time, unquote. 
Nelson's impressions were similar. Quote, it was the absolute misogyny of his crimes that stunned me, she wrote. His manifest rage against women. He had no compassion at all. He was totally engrossed in the details. His murders were his life's accomplishments. Unquote. Bundy confessed to detectives from Idaho, Utah, and Colorado that he had committed numerous additional homicides, including several that were unknown to the police. He explained that when he was in Utah, he could bring his victims back to his apartment, quote, where he could reenact scenarios depicted on the covers of detective magazines, unquote. A new ulterior strategy quickly became apparent. He withheld many details, hoping to parlay the incomplete information into yet another stay of execution. Quote, there are other buried remains in Colorado, he admitted, but refused to elaborate. The new strategy, immediately dubbed, quote, Ted's Bones for Time Scheme, served only to deepen the resolve of authorities to see Bundy executed on schedule and yielded little new detailed information. In cases where he did give details, nothing was found. Colorado detective Matt Linville interpreted this as a conflict between his desire to postpone his execution by divulging information and his need to remain in total possession, the only person who knew his victim's true resting places. When it became clear that no further stays would be forthcoming from the courts, Bundy supporters began lobbying for the only remaining option, executive clemency. Diana Weiner, a young Florida attorney and Bundy's last purported love interest, asked the families of several Colorado and Utah victims to petition Florida Governor Bob Martinez for a postponement to give Bundy time to reveal more information. All refused. Quote, the families already believed that the victims were dead and that Ted had killed them, wrote Nelson. They didn't need his confessions, unquote. Martinez made it clear that he would not agree to further delays in any case. Quote, we are not going to have the system manipulated, he told reporters. For him to be negotiating for his life over the bodies of his victims is despicable." Unquote. Boone had championed Bundy's innocence throughout all of his trials and felt deeply betrayed by his admission that he was in fact guilty. She moved back to Washington with her daughter and refused to accept the phone calls on the morning of his execution. Quote, she was hurt by his relationship with Diana Weiner, Nelson wrote and devastated by his sudden wholesale confession at his last days, unquote. Hagmer was present during Bundy's final interviews with investigators. On the eve of his execution, he talked of suicide. Quote, he did not want to give the state the satisfaction of watching him die, unquote, Hagmer said. Bundy died in the Rayford electric chair at 7.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 24, 1989, he was 42 years old. Hundreds of revelers, including 20 off-duty police officers by one account, sang, danced, and set off fireworks in a pasture across the street from the prison as the execution was carried out. They cheered loudly as the white hearse containing his corpse departed the prison. His body was cremated in Gainesville and his ashes scattered in an undisclosed location in the Cascade Range of Washington State in accordance with his will.
As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash truecrimetruckers slash. There you can browse the bazaar where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors as well as browse other shows on the Age of Radio Syndicate. Also, if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com slash truecrimetruckerspodcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks, so until then, stay safe.